Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 35 of The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35 Fine Work No hinge nor loop to hang a doubt on, but yet the pity of it, Iago, oh, Iago, the pity of it, Iago, Othello. One sentence dropped by Mr. Grice before leaving R prepared me for his next move. The clue to this murder is supplied by the paper on which the confession is written. Find those from whose desk or portfolio this especial sheet was taken, and you will find the double murderer, he had said. Consequently, I was not surprised when, upon visiting his house early the next morning, I beheld him seated before a table, on which lay a lady's writing-desk, and a pile of paper, till told the desk was Eleanor's. Then I did show astonishment. What? said I. Are you not satisfied yet of her innocence? Oh, yes, but one must be thorough. No conclusion is valuable which is not preceded by a full and complete investigation. Why? he cried casting his eyes complacently towards the fire-tongs, I have even been rummaging through Mr. Clavering's effects, though the confession bears the proof upon its face that it could not have been written by him. It is not enough to look for evidence where you expect to find it. You must sometimes search for it where you don't. Now, said he, drawing the desk before him, I don't anticipate finding anything here of a criminating character, but it is among the possibilities that I may, and that is enough for a detective. Did you see Miss Leavenworth this morning? I asked, as he proceeded to fulfil his intention by emptying the contents of the desk upon the table. Yes, I was unable to procure what I desired without it, and she behaved very handsomely gave me the desk with her own hands, and never raised an objection. To be sure, she had little idea what I was looking for. Thought perhaps I wanted to make sure it did not contain the letter about which so much has been said, but it would have made but little difference if she had known the truth. This desk contains nothing we want. Was she well, and had she heard of Hannah's sudden death? I asked, in my irrepressible anxiety. Yes, and feels it, as you might expect her to. But let us see what we have here, said he, pushing aside the desk, 
and drawing towards him the stack of paper I have already referred to. I found this pile, just as you see it, in a drawer of the library table at Miss Mary Leavenworth's house in Fifth Avenue. If I am not mistaken, it will supply us with the clue we want. But, but this paper is square, while that of the confession is of the size and shape of commercial note, I know, but you remember the sheet used in the confession was trimmed down. Let us compare the quality. Taking the confession from his pocket and the sheet from the pile before him, he carefully compared them, then held them out for my inspection. A glance showed them to be alike in colour. "'Hold them up to the light,' said he. I did so. The appearance presented by both was precisely alike. "'Now let us compare the ruling.' And laying them both down on the table, he placed the edges of the two sheets together. The lines on one accommodated themselves to the lines on the other, and that question was decided. His triumph was assured. "'I was convinced of it,' said he. "'From the moment I pulled open that drawer and saw this mass of paper, I knew the end was come.' "'But,' I objected in my old spirit of combativeness, "'isn't there any room for doubt? This paper is of the commonest kind.' Every family on the block might easily have specimens of it in their library. "'That isn't so,' he said. "'It is letter-size, and that has gone out. Mr. Leavenworth used it for his manuscript, or I doubt if it would have been found in his library. But if you are still incredulous, let us see what can be done.' And jumping up he carried the confession to the window, looked at it this way and that, and finally discovering what he wanted, came back, and, laying it before me, pointed out one of the lines of ruling which was markedly heavier than the rest, and another which was so faint as to be almost indistinguishable. "'Defects like these often run through a number of consecutive sheets,' said he. "'If we could find the identical half-choir from which this was taken, I might show you proof that would dispel every doubt.' and taking up the one that lay on top, he rapidly counted the sheets. There were but eight. "'It might have been taken from this one,' said he, but upon looking closely at the ruling, he found it to be uniformly distinct. Hmm. "'That won't do,' came from his lips. The remainder of the paper, some dozen or so half-quires, looked undisturbed. Mr. Grice tapped his fingers on the table, and a frown crossed his face. "'Such a pretty thing, if it could have been done!' he longingly exclaimed. Suddenly he took up the next half-choir. "'Count the sheets,' said he, thrusting it towards me, and himself lifting another. I did as I was bid. Twelve. He counted his, and laid it down. "'Go on with the rest,' he cried. I counted the sheets in the next. Twelve. He counted those in the one following, and paused. Eleven. "'Count again,' I suggested. He counted again, and quietly put them aside. "'I made a mistake,' said he. But he was not to be discouraged. Taking another half-quire, he went through with the same operation. In vain, with a sigh of impatience, he flung it down on the table and looked up. "'Hello!' he cried. "'What is the matter?' "'There are but eleven sheets in this package,' I said, placing it in his hand. 
The excitement he immediately evinced was contagious. Oppressed as I was, I could not resist his eagerness. "'Oh, beautiful!' he exclaimed. "'Oh, beautiful! See? The light on the inside, the heavy one on the outside, and both in positions precisely corresponding to those on this sheet of Hannah's. What do you think now? Is any further proof necessary?' the veriest doubter must succumb before this returned i with something like a considerate regard for my emotion he turned away i am obliged to congratulate myself notwithstanding the gravity of the discovery that has been made said he it is so neat so very neat and so conclusive i declare i am myself astonished at the perfection of the thing but what a woman that is he suddenly cried in a tone of the greatest admiration what an intellect she has what shrewdness what skill i declare it is almost a pity to entrap a woman who has done as well as this taken a sheet from the very bottom of the pile trimmed it into another shape and then remembering the girl couldn't write put what she had to say into coarse awkward printing hannah like splendid or would have been if any other man than myself had had this thing in charge and all animated and glowing with his enthusiasm he eyed the chandelier above him as if it were the embodiment of his own sagacity sunk in despair i let him go on could she have done any better he now asked watched circumscribed as she was could she have done any better i hardly think so the fact of hannah's having learned to write after she left here was fatal no she could not have provided against that contingency mr gryce i here interposed unable to endure this any longer did you have an interview with miss mary leavenworth this morning no said he it was not in the line of my present purpose to do so i doubt indeed if she knew i was in her house a servant-maid who has a grievance is a very valuable assistant to a detective with molly at my side i didn't need to pay my respects to the mistress mr gryce i asked after another moment of silent self-congratulation on his part and of desperate self-control on mine what do you propose to do now you have followed your clue to the end and are satisfied such knowledge as this is the precursor of action hm. we will see he returned going to his private desk and bringing out the box of papers which we had no opportunity of looking at while in r first let us examine these documents and see if they do not contain some hint which may be of service to us and taking out the dozen or so loose sheets which had been torn from Eleanor's diary, he began turning them over. While doing this, I took occasion to examine the contents of the box. I found them to be precisely what Mrs. Belden had led me to expect, a certificate of marriage between Mary and Mr. Clavering, and a half-dozen or more letters. While glancing over the former, a short exclamation from Mr. Grice startled me into looking up. "'What is it?' I cried he thrust into my hand the leaves of eleanor's diary read said he 
most of it is a repetition of what you have already heard from mrs belden though given from a different standpoint but there is one passage in it which if i am not mistaken opens up the way to an explanation of this murder such as we have not had yet begin at the beginning you won't find it dull dull eleanor's feelings and thought during that anxious time dull mustering up my self-possession i spread out the leaves in their order and commenced r july sixth two days after they got there you perceive mr gryce explained a gentleman was introduced to us to-day upon the piazza whom i cannot forbear mentioning first because he is the most perfect specimen of manly beauty i ever beheld and secondly because mary who is usually so voluble where gentlemen are concerned had nothing to say when in the privacy of our own apartment i questioned her as to the effect his appearance and conversation had made upon her the fact that he is an englishman may have something to do with this uncle's antipathy to every one of that nation being as well known to her as to me but somehow i cannot feel satisfied of this her experience with charlie somerville has made me suspicious what if the story of last summer were to be repeated here with an englishman for the hero but i will not allow myself to contemplate such a possibility uncle will return in a few days and then all communication with one who however prepossessing is of a family and race with whom it is impossible for us to unite ourselves must of necessity cease i doubt if i should have thought twice of all this if mr clavering had not betrayed upon his introduction to mary such intense and unrestrained admiration july the eighth the old story is to be repeated mary not only submits to the attentions of mr clavering but encourages them to-day she sat two hours at the piano singing over to him her favourite songs and to-night but i will not put down every trivial circumstance that comes under my observation it is unworthy of me and yet how can i shut my eyes when the happiness of so many i love is at stake july the eleventh if mr clavering is not absolutely in love with mary he is on the verge of it he is a very fine-looking man and too honourable to be trifled with in this reckless fashion july thirteenth mary's beauty blossoms like the rose she was absolutely wonderful to-night in scarlet and silver i think her smile the sweetest i ever beheld and in this i am sure mr clavering passionately agrees with me he never looked away from her to-night but it is not so easy to read her heart to be sure she appears anything but indifferent to his fine appearance strong sense and devoted affection but did she not deceive us into believing she loved charlie somerville in her case blush and smile go for little i fear would it not be wiser under the circumstances to say i hope july seventeenth oh my heart mary came into my room this evening and absolutely startled me by falling at my side and burying her face in my lap oh eleanor eleanor she murmured quivering with what seemed to me very happy sobs but when i strove to lift her head to my breast she slid from my arms and drawing herself up into her old attitude of reserved pride raised her hand as if to impose silence and haughtily left the room there is but one interpretation to put upon this mr clavering has expressed his sentiments and she is filled with that reckless delight 
which in its first flush makes one insensible to the existence of barriers which have hitherto been deemed impassable. When will uncle come? July the 18th. Little did I think when I wrote the above that uncle was already in the house. He arrived unexpectedly on the last train, and came into my room just as I was putting away my diary. Looking a little careworn, he took me in his arms, and then asked for Mary. I dropped my head, and could not help stammering, as I replied, that she was in her own room. Instantly his love took alarm, and leaving me, he hastened to her apartment, where I afterwards learned he came upon her sitting abstractedly before her dressing-table, with Mr. Clavering's family ring on her finger. I do not know what followed. An unhappy scene, I fear, for Mary is ill this morning, and uncle exceedingly melancholy and stern. Afternoon. We are an unhappy family. Uncle not only refuses to consider for a moment the question of Mary's alliance with Mr. Clavering, but even goes so far as to demand his instant and unconditional dismissal. The knowledge of this came to me in the most distressing way. Recognising the state of affairs, but secretly rebelling against a prejudice which seemed destined to separate two persons otherwise fitted for each other, I sought uncle's presence this morning after breakfast, and attempted to plead their cause, but he almost instantly stopped me with the remark, "'You are the last one, Eleanor, who should seek to promote this marriage.' Trembling with apprehension, I asked him why, for the reason that by so doing you work entirely for your own interest. More and more troubled, I begged him to explain himself. I mean, said he, that if Mary disobeys me by marrying this Englishman, I shall disinherit her, and substitute your name for hers in my will, as well as in my affection. For a moment everything swam before my eyes. You will never make me so wretched, I entreated. I will make you my heiress if Mary persists in her present determination, he declared, and without further word sternly left the room. What could I do but fall on my knees and pray? Of all in this miserable house I am the most wretched. To supplant her, but I shall not be called upon to do it. Mary will give up Mr. Clavering. There, exclaimed Mr. Grice, what do you think of that? Isn't it becoming plain enough what was Mary's motive for this murder? But go on, let us hear what followed. With sinking heart I continued. The next entry is dated July 19th, and runs thus. I was right. After a long struggle with Uncle's invincible will, Mary has consented to dismiss Mr. Clavering. I was in the room when she made known her decision, and I shall never forget our Uncle's look of gratified pride as he clasped her in his arms and called her his own true heart. He has evidently been very much exercised over this matter, and I cannot but feel greatly relieved that affairs have terminated so satisfactorily. But Mary, what is there in her manner that vaguely disappoints me? I cannot say. I only know that I felt a powerful shrinking overwhelm me when she turned her face to me, and asked if I were satisfied now. But I conquered my feelings and held out my hand. She did not take it. July 26th. How long the days are! The shadow of our late trial is upon me yet. I cannot shake it off. I seem to see Mr. Clavering's despairing face wherever I go. How is it that Mary preserves her cheerfulness? If she does not love him, I should think the respect which she must feel for his disappointment would keep her from the levity at least. 
uncle has gone away again. Nothing I could say sufficed to keep him. July 28th. It has all come out. Mary has only nominally separated from Mr. Clavering. She still cherishes the idea of one day uniting herself to him in marriage. The fact was revealed to me in a strange way, not necessary to mention here, and has since been confirmed by Mary herself. I admire the man, she declares, and have no intention of giving him up. Then why not tell Uncle so? I asked. Her only answer was a bitter smile, and a short, I'll leave that for you to do. July 30th, Midnight Worn completely out, but before my blood cools, let me write. Mary is a wife. I have just returned from seeing her give her hand to Henry Clavering. Strange that I can write it without quivering, when my whole soul is one flush of indignation and revolt. But let me state the facts. Having left my room for a few minutes this morning, I returned to find on my dressing-table a note from Mary, in which she informed me that she was going to take Mrs. Belden for a drive, and would not be back for some hours. Convinced, as I had every reason to be, that she was on her way to meet Mr. Clavering, I only stopped to put on my hat. There the diary ceased. "'She was probably interrupted by Mary at this point,' explained Mr. Grice. "'But we have come upon the one thing we wanted to know. Mr. Leavenworth threatened to supplant Mary with Eleanor, if she persisted in marrying contrary to his wishes. She did so marry, and to avoid the consequences of her act, she—' "'Say no more,' I returned, convinced at last. "'It is only too clear.' Mr. Grice rose. "'But the writer of these words is saved,' I went on, trying to grasp the one comfort left me. No one who reads this diary will ever dare to insinuate she is capable of committing a crime. Assuredly not. The diary settles that matter effectually. I tried to be man enough to think of that and nothing else, to rejoice in her deliverance and let every other consideration go, but in this I did not succeed. But Mary, her cousin, almost her sister, is lost, I muttered. Mr. Grice thrust his hands into his pockets, and for the first time showed some evidence of secret disturbance. "'Yes, I'm afraid she is. I really am afraid she is.' Then, after a pause, during which I felt a certain thrill of vague hope, "'Such an entrancing creature, too. It is a pity. It positively is a pity. I declare now that the thing is worked up. I begin to feel almost sorry we have succeeded so well. Strange but true. If there was the least loophole out of it, he muttered, but there isn't. The thing is clear as A, B, C. Suddenly he rose and began pacing the floor very thoughtfully, casting his glances here, there, and everywhere except at me, although I believe now, as then, my face was all he saw. "'Would it be a very great grief to you, Mr. Raymond, if Miss Mary Leavenworth should be arrested on this charge of murder?' he asked, pausing before a sort of tank in which two or three disconsolate-looking fishes were slowly swimming about. "'Yes,' said I, "'it would, a very great grief.' "'Yet it must be done,' said he, though with a strange lack of his usual decision. 
as an honest official trusted to bring the murderer of mr leavenworth to the notice of the proper authorities i have got to do it again that strange thrill of hope at my heart induced by his peculiar manner then my reputation as a detective i ought surely to consider that i am not so rich or so famous that i can afford to forget all that a success like this may bring me no lovely as she is i have got to push it through but even as he said this he became still more thoughtful gazing down into the murky depths of the wretched tank before him with such an intentness i half expected the fascinated fishes to rise from the water and return his gaze what was in his mind after a little while he turned his indecision utterly gone mr raymond come here again at three i shall then have my report ready for the superintendent i should like to show it to you first so don't fail me there was something so repressed in his expression i could not prevent myself from venturing one question is your mind made up i asked yes he returned but in a peculiar tone and with a peculiar gesture and you are going to make the arrest you speak of come at three end of chapter thirty five chapter thirty six of the leavenworth case by anna katherine green this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter thirty six gathered threads this is the short and long of it merry wives of windsor promptly at the hour named i made my appearance at mr gryce's door i found him awaiting me on the threshold i have met you said he gravely for the purpose of requesting you not to speak during the coming interview i am to do the talking you the listening neither are you to be surprised at anything i may do or say i am in a facetious mood he did not look so and may take it into my head to address you by another name than your own if i do don't mind it above all don't talk remember that and without waiting to meet my look of doubtful astonishment he led me softly upstairs the room in which i had been accustomed to meet him was at the top of the first flight but he took me past that into what appeared to be the garret story where after many cautionary signs he ushered me into a room of singularly strange and unpromising appearance in the first place it was darkly gloomy being lighted simply by a very dim and dirty skylight next it was hideously empty a pine table and two hard-backed chairs set face to face at each end of it being the only articles in the room lastly it was surrounded by several closed doors with blurred and ghostly ventilators over their tops which being round looked like the blank eyes of a row of staring mummies altogether it was a lugubrious spot and in the present state of my mind made me feel as if something unearthly and threatening lay crouched in the very atmosphere nor sitting there cold and desolate could i imagine that the sunshine glowed without or that life beauty and pleasure paraded the streets below 
Mr. Grice's expression, as he took a seat and beckoned me to do the same, may have had something to do with this strange sensation. It was so mysteriously and sombrely expectant. "'You'll not mind the room,' said he. In so muffled a tone I scarcely heard him. "'It's an awful lonesome spot, I know. But folks with such matters before them mustn't be too particular as to the places in which they hold their consultations, if they don't want all the world to know as much as they do.' "'Smith,'—and he gave me an admonitory shake of his finger, while his voice took a more distinct tone—'I have done the business. The reward is mine. The assassin of Mr. Leavenworth is found, and in two hours will be in custody. Do you want to know who it is?'—leaning forward with every appearance of eagerness in tone and expression. I stared at him in great amazement. Had anything new come to light?' any great change taken place in his conclusions? All this preparation could not be for the purpose of acquainting me with what I already knew, yet he cut short my conjectures with a low expressive chuckle. "'It was a long chase, I tell you,' raising his voice still more, "'a tight go, a woman in the business too, but all the women in the world can't pull the wool over the eyes of Ebenezer Grice when he is on a trail, and the assassin of Mr. Leavenworth, and—here his voice became actually shrill in his excitement—and of Hannah Chester is found. "'Hush!' he went on, though I had neither spoken nor made any move. "'You didn't know Hannah Chester was murdered? Well, she wasn't in one sense of the word but in another she was, and by the same hand that killed the old gentleman. How do I know this? Look here. This scrap of paper was found on the floor of her room. It had a few particles of white powder sticking to it. Those particles were tested last night, and found to be poison. But you say the girl took it herself, that she was a suicide. You are right. She did take it herself, and it was a suicide. But who terrified her into the act of self-destruction? Why, the one who had the most reason to fear her testimony, of course. But the proof, you say? Well, sir, this girl left a confession behind her, throwing the onus of the whole crime on a certain party believed to be innocent. This confession was a forged one, known from three facts first that the paper upon which it was written was unobtainable by the girl in the place where she was, secondly, that the words used therein were printed in coarse, awkward characters, whereas Hannah, thanks to the teaching of the woman, under whose care she has been since the murder, has learned to write very well, thirdly, that the story told in the confession does not agree with the one related by the girl herself. Now, the fact of a forged confession, throwing the guilt upon an innocent party having been found in the keeping of this ignorant girl, killed by a dose of poison, taken with the fact here stated that on the morning of the day on which she killed herself, the girl received from some one manifestly acquainted with the customs of the Leavenworth family, a letter large enough and thick enough to contain the confession, folded, as it was when found, makes it almost certain to my mind that the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth sent this powder and this so-called confession to the girl, meaning her to use them precisely as she did. 
for the purpose of throwing off suspicion from the right track and of destroying herself at the same time for as you know dead men tell no tales he paused and looked at the dingy skylight above us why did the air seem to grow heavier and heavier why did i shudder in vague apprehension i knew all this before why did it strike me then as something new but who was this you ask ah that is the secret that is the bit of knowledge which is to bring me fame and fortune but secret or not i don't mind telling you lowering his voice and rapidly raising it again the fact is i can't keep it to myself it burns like a new dollar in my pocket smith my boy the murderer of mr leavenworth but stay who does the world say it is whom do the papers point at and shake their heads over a woman a young beautiful bewitching woman <laughs> the papers are right it is a woman young and beautiful and bewitching too but what one ah that's the question there is more than one woman in this affair since hannah's death i have heard it openly advanced that she was the guilty party in the crime Pah! others cry it is the niece who was so unequally dealt with by her uncle in his will bah again but folks are not without some justification for this latter assertion eleanor leavenworth did know more of this matter than appeared worse than that eleanor leavenworth stands in a position of positive peril to-day if you don't think so let me show you what the detectives have against her first there is the fact that a handkerchief with her name on it was found stained with pistol grease upon the scene of murder a place which she explicitly denies having entered for twenty-four hours previous to the discovery of the dead body secondly the fact that she not only evinced terror when confronted with this bit of circumstantial evidence but manifested a decided disposition both at this time and others to mislead inquiry shirking a direct answer to some questions and refusing all answers to others thirdly that an attempt was made by her to destroy a certain letter evidently relating to this crime fourthly that the key to the library door was seen in her possession all this taken with the fact that the fragments of the letter which this same lady attempted to destroy within an hour after the inquest were afterwards put together and were found to contain a bitter denunciation of one of mr leavenworth's nieces by a gentleman we will call x in other words an unknown quantity makes out a dark case against you especially as after the investigations revealed the fact that a secret underlay the history of the leavenworth family that unknown to the world at large and mr leavenworth in particular a marriage ceremony had been performed a year before in a little town called f between a miss leavenworth and this same x that in other words the unknown gentleman who in the letter partly destroyed by miss eleanor leavenworth complained to mr leavenworth 
of the treatment received by him from one of his nieces was in fact the secret husband of that niece and that moreover this same gentleman under an assumed name called on the night of the murder at the house of mr leavenworth and asked for miss eleanore's now you see with all this against her eleanore leavenworth is lost if it cannot be proved first that the articles testifying against her viz the handkerchief letter and key passed after the murder through other hands before reaching hers and secondly that some one else had even a stronger reason than she for desiring mr leavenworth's death at this time smith my boy both of these hypotheses have been established by me by dint of moling into old secrets and following unpromising clues i have finally come to the conclusion that not eleanore leavenworth dark as are the appearances against her but another woman beautiful as she and fully as interesting is the true criminal in short that her cousin the exquisite mary is the murderer of mr leavenworth and by inference of hannah chester also he brought this out with such force and with such a look of triumph and appearance of having led up to it that i was for the moment dumbfounded and started as if i had not known what he was going to say the stir i made seemed to awake an echo something like a suppressed cry was in the air about me all the room appeared to breathe horror and dismay yet when in the excitement of this fancy i half turned round to look i found nothing but the blank eyes of those dull ventilators staring upon me you are taken aback mr gryce went on i don't wonder every one else is engaged in watching the movements of eleanor leavenworth i only know where to put my hand upon the real culprit you shake your head another fiction you don't believe me think i am deceived ha <laughs> ha ebenezer gryce deceived after a month of hard work you are as bad as miss leavenworth herself who has so little faith in my sagacity that she offered me of all men an enormous reward if i would find for her the assassin of her uncle but that is neither here nor there you have your doubts and you are waiting for me to solve them well nothing is easier know first that on the morning of the inquest i made one or two discoveries not to be found in the records viz that the handkerchief picked up as i have said in mr leavenworth's library had notwithstanding its stains of pistol grease a decided perfume lingering about it going to the dressing-table of the two ladies i sought for that perfume and found it in mary's room not eleanor's this led me to examine the pockets of the dresses respectively worn by them the evening before in that of eleanor i found a handkerchief presumably the one she had carried at that time but in mary's there was none nor did i see any lying about her room as if tossed down on her retiring the conclusion i drew from this was that she and not eleanor had carried the handkerchief into her uncle's room a conclusion emphasized by the fact privately communicated to me by one of the servants 
that Mary was in Eleanor's room, when the basket of clean clothes was brought up with this handkerchief lying on top. But knowing the reliability we are to mistake in such matters as these, I made another search in the library, and came across a very curious thing. Lying on the table was a penknife, and scattered on the floor beneath, in close proximity to the chair, were two or three minute portions of wood, freshly chipped off from the leg of the table, all of which looked as if some one of nervous disposition had been sitting there, whose hand, in a moment of self-forgetfulness, had caught up the knife and unconsciously whittled the table. A little thing, you say, but when the question is, which of the two ladies, one of a calm and self-possessed nature, the other restless in her ways and excitable in her disposition, was in a certain spot at a certain time, it is these little things that become almost deadly in their significance. No one who has been with these two women an hour can hesitate as to whose delicate hand made that cut in Mr. Leavenworth's library table. But we are not done. I distinctly overheard Eleanor accuse her cousin of this deed. Now such a woman as Eleanor Leavenworth has proved herself to be never would accuse a relative of crime without the strongest and most substantial reasons. First, she must have been sure her cousin stood in a position of such emergency that nothing but the death of her uncle could release her from it. Secondly, that her cousin's character was of such a nature she would not hesitate to relieve herself from a desperate emergency by the most desperate of means. And lastly, been in possession of some circumstantial evidence against her cousin, seriously corroborative of her suspicions. Smith, all this was true of Eleanor Leavenworth. As to the character of her cousin, she has had ample proof of her ambition, love of money, caprice and deceit, it having been Mary Leavenworth, and not Eleanor, as was first supposed, who had contracted the secret marriage already spoken of. Of the critical position in which she stood, let the threat once made by Mr. Leavenworth to substitute her cousin's name for hers in his will, in case she had married this ex, be remembered, as well as the tenacity with which Mary clung to her hopes of future fortune, while for the corroborative testimony of her guilt which Eleanor is supposed to have had, remember that previous to the key having been found in Eleanor's possession, she had spent some time in her cousin's room and that it was at Mary's fireplace the half-burned fragments of that letter were found, and you have the outline of a report which in an hour's time from this will lead to the arrest of Mary Leavenworth as the assassin of her uncle and benefactor. A silence ensued, which, like the darkness of Egypt, could be felt. Then a great and terrible cry rang through the room, and a man's form, rushing from I knew not where, shot by me and fell at Mr. Grice's feet, shrieking out, "'It is a lie! a lie! Mary Leavenworth is innocent, as a babe unborn! I am the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth! I! I! I!' It was Truman Harwell. End of chapter 36
of the Leavenworth case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty seven Culmination Saint Seducing Gold Romeo and Juliet When our actions do not, our fears do make us traitors. Macbeth I never saw such a look of mortal triumph on the face of a man as that which crossed the countenance of the detective. "'Well,' said he, "'this is unexpected, but not wholly unwelcome. I am truly glad to learn that Miss Leavenworth is innocent, but I must hear some few more particulars before I shall be satisfied. Get up, Mr. Harwell, and explain yourself.' If you are the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth, how comes it that things look so black against everybody but yourself? But in the hot feverish eyes which sought him from the writhing form at his feet there was a mad anxiety and pain, but little explanation. Seeing him making unavailing efforts to speak, I drew near. "'Lean on me,' said I, lifting him to his feet. His face, relieved forever from its mask of repression, turned towards me with the look of a despairing spirit. "'Save! save!' he gasped. "'Save her! Mary! They are sending a report! Stop it!' "'Yes,' broke in another voice. "'If there is a man here who believes in God and prizes woman's honour, let him stop the issue of that report.' And Henry Clavering, dignified as ever, but in a state of extreme agitation, stepped into our midst, through an open door at our right. But at the sight of his face the man in our arms quivered, shrieked, and gave one bound that would have overturned Mr. Clavering, Herculean of frame as he was, had not Mr. Grice interposed. "'Wait!' he cried, and holding back the secretary with one hand—where was his rheumatism now?—he put the other in his pocket and drew thence a document, which he held up before Mr. Clavering. "'It has not gone yet,' said he. "'Be easy.' "'And you,' he went on, turning towards Truman Harwell, "'be quiet, or—' His sentence was cut short by the man springing from his grasp. "'Let me go!' he shrieked. "'Let me have my revenge on him, who, in the face of all I have done for Mary Leavenworth, dares to call her his wife. Let me—' But at this point he paused, his quivering frame stiffening into stone and his clutching hands outstretched for his rival's throat, falling heavily back. "'Hark!' said he, glaring over Mr. Clavering's shoulder. "'It is she! I hear her! I feel her! She is on the stairs! She is at the door! She—' A low, shuddering sigh of longing and despair finished the sentence. The door opened, and Mary Leavenworth stood before us. It was a moment to make young hairs turn grey, to see her face, so pale, so haggard, so wild in its fixed horror, turned towards Henry Clavering, to the utter ignoring of the real actor in this most horrible scene. Truman Harwell could not stand it. "'Ah! ah!' he cried. "'Look at her! Cold! Cold! Not one glance for me, though I have just drawn the halter from her neck, and fastened it about my own!' 
and breaking from the clasp of the man who in his jealous rage would now have withheld him he fell on his knees before mary clutching her dress with frenzied hands you shall look at me he cried you shall listen to me i will not lose body and soul for nothing mary they said you were in peril i could not endure that thought so i uttered the truth yes though i knew what the consequences would be and all i want now is for you to say you believe me when i swear that i only meant to secure you the fortune you so much desired that i never dreamed it would come to this that it was because i loved you and hoped to win your love in return that i but she did not seem to see him did not seem to hear him her eyes were fixed upon henry clavering with an awful inquiry in their depths and none but he could move her you do not hear me shrieked the poor wretch ice that you are you would not turn your head if i should call you from the depths of hell but even this cry fell unheeded pushing her hands down upon his shoulders as though she would sweep some impediment from her path she endeavoured to advance why is that man here she cried indicating her husband with one quivering hand what has he done that he should be brought here to confront me at this awful time i told her to come here to meet her uncle's murderer whispered mr gryce into my ear but before i could reply to her before mr clavering himself could murmur a word the guilty wretch before her had started to his feet don't you know then i will tell you it is because these gentlemen chivalrous and honourable as they consider themselves think that you the beauty and the sybarite committed with your own white hand the deed of blood which has brought you freedom and fortune yes this man turning and pointing at me friend as he had friend as he has made himself out to be kindly and honourable as you have doubtless believed him but who in every look he has bestowed upon you every word he has uttered in your hearing during all these four horrible weeks has been weaving a cord for your neck thinks you the assassin of your uncle unknowing that a man stood at your side ready to sweep half the world from your path if that same white hand rose in bidding during all those that i you ah now she could see him now she could hear him yes clutching her robe again as she hastily recoiled didn't you know it when in that dreadful hour of your rejection by your uncle you cried aloud for someone to help you didn't you know don't she shrieked bursting from him with a look of unspeakable horror don't say that oh she gasped is the mad cry of a stricken woman for aid and sympathy the call for a murderer and turning away in horror she moaned who that ever looks at me now will forget that a man such a man dared to think that because i was in mortal perplexity i would accept the murder of my best friend as a relief from it her horror was unbounded oh what a chastisement for folly she murmured what a punishment for the love of money which has always been my curse henry clavering could no longer restrain himself leaping to her side he bent over her was it nothing but folly mary are you guiltless of any deeper wrong is there no link of complicity between you two have you nothing on your soul but an inordinate desire to preserve your place in your uncle's will even at the risk of breaking my heart and wronging your noble cousin are you innocent in this matter tell me 
placing his hand on her head, he pressed it slowly back and gazed into her eyes, then without a word took her to his breast and looked calmly around him. "'She is innocent,' said he. It was the uplifting of a stifling pall. No one in the room, unless it was the wretched criminal shivering before us, but felt a sudden influx of hope. Even Mary's own countenance caught a glow. "'Oh!' she whispered, withdrawing from his arms to look better into his face. "'And is this the man I have trifled with, injured, and tortured, till the very name of Mary Leavenworth might well make him shudder? Is this he whom I married in a fit of caprice, only to forsake and deny? Henry, do you declare me innocent in face of all you have seen and heard, in face of that moaning, chattering wretch before us, and my own quaking flesh and evident terror, with the remembrance on your heart and in your mind of the letter I wrote you the morning after the murder, in which I prayed you to keep away from me, as I was in such deadly danger, the least hint given to the world that I had a secret to conceal would destroy me? Do you, can you, will you declare me innocent before God and the world? I do, said he. A light such as had never visited her face before passed slowly over it. Then God forgive me the wrong I have done this noble heart, for I can never forgive myself. Wait, she said, as he opened his lips, before I accept any further tokens of your generous confidence, let me show you what I am. You shall know the worst of the woman you have taken to your heart. Mr. Raymond, she cried, turning towards me for the first time, in those days when, with such an earnest desire for my welfare—you see, I do not believe this man's insinuations—you sought to induce me to speak out and tell all I knew concerning this dreadful deed. I did not do it because of my selfish fears. I knew the case looked dark against me. Eleanor had told me so. Eleanor herself, and it was the keenest pang I had to endure, believed me guilty. She had her reasons. She knew first from the directed envelope she had found lying underneath my uncle's dead body on the library table, that he had been engaged at the moment of death in summoning his lawyer to make that change in his will which would transfer my claims to her. Secondly, that, notwithstanding my denial of the same, I had been down to his room the night before, for she had heard my door open and my dress rustle as I passed out. But that was not all. The key that every one felt to be a positive proof of guilt wherever found had been picked up by her from the floor of my room. The letter written by Mr. Clavering to my uncle was found in my fire, and the handkerchief which she had seen me take from the basket of clean clothes was produced at the inquest stained with pistol grease. I could not account for these things. A web seemed tangled about my feet. I could not stir without encountering some new toil. I knew I was innocent, but if I failed to satisfy my cousin of this, how could I hope to convince the general public, if once called upon to do so? Worse still, if Eleanor, with every apparent motive for desiring long life to our uncle, was held in such suspicion because of a few circumstantial evidences against her, what would I not have to fear if these evidences were turned against me, the heiress? The tone and manner of the juryman at the inquest 
that asked who would be most benefited by my uncle's will showed but too plainly when therefore eleanor true to her heart's generous instincts closed her lips and refused to speak when speech would have been my ruin i let her do it justifying myself with the thought that she had deemed me capable of crime and so must bear the consequences nor when i saw how dreadful these were likely to prove did i relent fear of the ignominy suspense and danger which confession would entail sealed my lips only once did i hesitate that was when in the last conversation we had i saw that notwithstanding appearances you believed in eleanor's innocence and the thought crossed me you might be induced to believe in mine if i threw myself upon your mercy but just then mr clavering came and as in a flash i seemed to realize what my future life would be stained by suspicion and instead of yielding to my impulse went so far in the other direction as to threaten mr clavering with a denial of our marriage if he approached me again till all danger was over yes he will tell you that was my welcome to him when with heart and brain racked by long suspense he came to my door for one word of assurance that the peril i was in was not of my own making that was the greeting i gave him after a year of silence every moment of which was torture to him but he forgives me i see it in his eyes i hear it in his accents and you oh if in the long years to come you can forget what i have made eleanor suffer by my selfish fears if with the shadow of her wrong before you you can by the grace of some sweet hope think a little less hardly of me do so as for this man torture could not be worse to me than this standing with him in the same room let him come forward and declare if i by look or word have given him reason to believe i understood his passion much less returned it why ask he gasped don't you see it was your indifference which drove me mad to stand before you to agonize after you to follow you with thoughts in every move you made to know my soul was welded to yours with bands of steel no fire could melt no force destroy no strain dissever to sleep under the same roof sit at the same table and yet meet not so much as one look to show me you understood it was that which made my life a hell i was determined you should understand if i had to leap into a pit of flame you should know what i was and what my passion for you was and you do you comprehend it all now shrink as you will from my presence cower as you may from the weak man you call husband you can never forget the love of truman harwell never forget that love 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 was the force which led me down into your uncle's room that night and lent me will to pull the trigger which poured all wealth you hold this day into your lap yes he went on towering in his preternatural despair till even the noble form of henry clavering looked dwarfed beside him every dollar that chinks from your purse shall talk of me every gigor which flashes on that haughty head too haughty to bend to me shall shriek my name into your ears fashion pomp luxury you will have them all but till gold loses its glitter and ease its attraction you will never forget the hand that gave them to you with a look whose evil triumph i cannot describe he put his hand into the arm of the waiting detective and in another moment would have been led from the room 
when Mary, crushing down the swell of emotions that was seething in her breast, lifted her head and said, "'No, Truman Harwell, I cannot give you even that thought for your comfort. Wealth so laden would bring nothing but torture. I cannot accept the torture, so must release the wealth. From this day Mary Clavering owns nothing but what comes to her from the husband she has so long and so basely wronged.' and raising her hands to her ears, she tore out the diamonds which hung there, and flung them at the feet of the unfortunate man. It was the final wrench of the rack. With a yell such as I never thought to listen to from the lips of a man, he flung up his arms, while all the lurid light of madness glared on his face. "'And I have given my soul to hell for a shadow,' he moaned, "'for a shadow!' Well. That is the best day's work I ever did. Your congratulations, Mr. Raymond, upon the success of the most daring game ever played in a detective's office. I looked at the triumphant countenance of Mr. Grice in amazement. What do you mean? I cried. Did you plan all this? Did I plan it? he repeated. Could I stand here, seeing how things have turned out, if I had not? Mr. Raymond, let us be comfortable. You are a gentleman, but we can well shake hands over this. I have never known such a satisfactory conclusion to a bad piece of business in all my professional career." We did shake hands, long and fervently, and then I asked him to explain himself. "'Well,' said he, "'there has always been one thing that plagued me. Even in the very moment of my strongest suspicion against this woman, and that was the pistol-cleaning business. I could not reconcile it with what I knew of womankind. I could not make it seem the act of a woman. Did you ever know a woman who cleaned a pistol? No. They can fire them, and do. But after firing them, they do not clean them. Now, it is a principle which every detective recognises, that if of a hundred leading circumstances connected with a crime, ninety-nine of these are acts pointing to the suspected party with unerring certainty, but the hundredth equally important act, one which that person could not have performed, the whole fabric of suspicion is destroyed. Recognising this principle, then, as I have said, I hesitated when it came to the point of arrest. The chain was complete, the links were fastened, but one link was of a different size and material from the rest, and in this argued a break in the chain. I resolved to give her a final chance. Summering Mr. Clavering and Mr. Harwell, two persons, whom I had no reason to suspect, but who were the only persons beside herself who could have committed this crime, being the only persons of intellect who were in the house, or believed to be, at the time of the murder, I notified them separately that the assassin of Mr. Leavenworth was not only found, but was about to be arrested in my house, and that if they wished to hear the confession which would be sure to follow, they might have the opportunity of doing so by coming here at such an hour. 
they were both too much interested, though for very different reasons, to refuse, and I succeeded in inducing them to conceal themselves in the two rooms from which you saw them issue, knowing that if either of them had committed this deed, he had done it for the love of Mary Leavenworth, and consequently could not hear her charged with the crime and threatened with arrest, without betraying himself. I did not hope much from the experiment. Least of all did I anticipate that Mr. Harwell would prove to be the guilty man. But live and learn, Mr. Raymond, live and learn. End of chapter 37Chapter thirty eight of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty eight A Full Confession. Between the acting of a dreadful thing and the first motion, all the interim is like a phantasma or a hideous dream. The genius and the mortal instruments are then in council, and the state of a man, like to a little kingdom, suffers then the nature of an insurrection. Julius Caesar I am not a bad man. I am only an intense one. Ambition, love, jealousy, hatred, revenge, transitory emotions with some, are terrific passions with me. To be sure, they are quiet and concealed ones, coiled serpents that make no stir till aroused, but then deadly in their spring and relentless in their action. Those who have known me best have not known this. My own mother was ignorant of it. Often and often I have heard her say, if Truman only had more sensibility, if Truman were not so indifferent to everything, in short, if Truman had more power in him. It was the same at school. No one understood me. They thought me meek, called me doe-face. For three years they called me this. Then I turned upon them. Choosing out their ringleader, I felled him to the ground, laid him on his back, and stamped upon him. He was handsome before my foot came down. Afterwards—well, it is enough he never called me Doe-Face again. In the store I entered soon after, I met with even less appreciation. Regular at my work and exact in my performance of it, they thought me a good machine and nothing more. What heart, soul, and feeling could a man have who never sported, never smoked, and never laughed? I could reckon up figures correctly, but one scarcely needed heart or soul for that. I could even write day by day and month by month without showing a flaw in my copy, but that only argued I was no more than they intimated, a regular automaton. I let them think so, with the certainty before me that they would one day change their minds as others had done. The fact was I loved nobody well enough, not even myself, to care for any man's opinion. Life was well-nigh a blank to me, a dead level plain that had to be traversed whether I would or not, and such it might have continued to this day if I had never met Mary Leavenworth. But when, some nine months since, I left my desk in the counting-house for a seat in Mr. Leavenworth's library, a blazing torch fell into my soul, whose flame has never gone out, and never will, till the doom before me is accomplished. She was so beautiful. When, on that first evening, I followed my new employer into the parlour, 
and saw this woman standing up before me in her half-alluring, half-appalling charm, I knew, as by a lightning flash, what my future would be if I remained in that house. She was in one of her haughty moods, and bestowed upon me little more than a passing glance. But her indifference made slight impression upon me then. It was enough that I was allowed to stand in her presence, and look unrebuked upon her loveliness. To be sure, it was like gazing into the flower-wreathed crater of an awakening volcano. Fear and fascination were in each moment I lingered there, but fear and fascination made the moment what it was, and I could not have withdrawn if I would. And so it was always. Unspeakable pain, as well as pleasure, was in the emotion with which I regarded her. Yet for all that I did not cease to study her hour by hour, and day by day, her smiles, her movement, her way of turning her head or lifting her eyelids. I had a purpose in this. I wished to knit her beauty so firmly into the warp and woof of my being that nothing could ever serve to tear it away. For I saw then, as plainly as now, that, coquette though she was, she would never stoop to me. No, I might lie down at her feet and let her trample over me, she would not even turn to see what it was she had stepped upon. I might spend days, months, years, learning the alphabet of her wishes, she would not thank me for my pains, or even raise the lashes from her cheek to look at me as I passed. I was nothing to her, could not be anything, unless—and this thought came slowly—I could in some way become her master. Meantime I wrote at Mr. Leavenworth's dictation and pleased him. My methodical ways were just to his taste. As for the other member of the family, Miss Eleanor Leavenworth, she treated me just as one of her proud but sympathetic nature might be expected to do. Not familiarly, but kindly. Not as a friend, but as a member of the household whom she met every day at table, and who, as she or anyone else could see, was none too happy or hopeful. Six months went by. I had learned two things. First, that Mary Leavenworth loved her position as prospective heiress to a large fortune above every other earthly consideration, and, secondly, that she was in the possession of a secret which endangered that position. What this was I had for some time no means of knowing, but when later I became convinced it was one of love, I grew hopeful, strange as it may seem. For by this time I had learned Mr. Leavenworth's disposition almost as perfectly as that of his niece, and knew that in a matter of this kind he would be uncompromising, and that in the clashing of these two wills something might occur which would give me a hold upon her. The only thing that troubled me was the fact that I did not know the name of the man in whom she was interested. But chance soon favoured me here. One day, a month ago now, I sat down to open Mr. Leavenworth's mail as usual. One letter—shall I ever forget it?—ran thus. Hoffman House, March 1st, 1876. Mr. Horatio Leavenworth. Dear Sir, You have a niece whom you love and trust, one, too, who seems worthy of all the love and trust that you or any other man can give her. So beautiful, so charming, so tender is she in face, form, manner, and conversation. But, dear sir, every rose has its thorn, and your rose is no exception to this rule. Lovely as she is, charming as she is, tender as she is, 
she is not only capable of trampling on the rights of one who trusted her but of bruising the heart and breaking the spirit of him to whom she owes all duty honour and observance if you don't believe this ask her to her cruel bewitching face who and what is her humble servant and yours henry ritchie clavering if a bombshell had exploded at my feet or the evil one himself appeared at my call i would not have been more astounded not only was the name signed to these remarkable words unknown to me but the epistle itself was that of one who felt himself to be her master a position which as you know i was myself aspiring to occupy for a few minutes then i stood a prey to feelings of the bitterest wrath and despair then i grew calm realizing that with this letter in my possession i was virtually the arbitrator of her destiny some men would have sought her there and then and by threatening to place it in her uncle's hand won from her a look of entreaty if no more but i well my plans went deeper than that i knew she would have to be in extremity before i could hope to win her she must feel herself slipping over the edge of the precipice before she would clutch at the first thing offering succour i decided to allow the letter to pass into my employer's hands but it had been opened how could i manage to give it to him in this condition without exciting his suspicion i knew of but one way to let him see me open it for what he would consider the first time so waiting till he came into the room i approached him with the letter tearing off the end of the envelope as i came opening it i gave a cursory glance at its contents and tossed it down on the table before him that appears to be of a private character said i although there is no sign to that effect on the envelope he took it up while i stood there at the first word he started looked at me seemed satisfied from my expression that i had not read far enough to realize its nature and whirling slowly around in his chair devoured the remainder in silence i waited a moment then withdrew to my own desk one minute two minutes passed in silence he was evidently re-reading the letter then he hurriedly rose and left the room as he passed me i caught a glimpse of his face in the mirror the expression i saw there did not tend to lessen the hope that was rising in my breast by following him almost immediately upstairs i ascertained that he went directly to mary's room and when in a few hours later the family collected around the dinner-table i perceived almost without looking up that a great and insurmountable barrier had been raised between him and his favourite niece two days passed days that were for me one long and unrelieved suspense had mr leavenworth answered that letter would it all end as it had begun without the appearance of the mysterious clavering on the scene i could not tell meanwhile my monotonous work went on grinding my heart beneath its relentless wheel i wrote and wrote and wrote till it seemed as if my life-blood went from me with every drop of ink i used always alert and listening i dared not lift my head or turn my eyes at any unusual sound lest i should seem to be watching on the third night i had a dream i have already told mr raymond what it was and hence will not repeat it here one correction however i wish to make in regard to it in my statement to him i declared that the face of the man whom i saw lift his hand against my employer was that of mr clavering i lied when i said this 
the face seen by me in my dream was my own. It was that fact which made it so horrible to me. In the crouching figure stealing warily downstairs, I saw, as in a glass, the vision of my own form. Otherwise my account of the matter was true. The vision had a tremendous effect upon me. Was it a premonition? A forewarning of the way in which I was to win this coveted creature for my own? Was the death of her uncle the bridge by which the impassable gulf between us might be spanned? I began to think it might be. To consider the possibilities which could make this the only path to my Elysium, even went so far as to picture her lovely face bending gratefully towards me through the glare of a sudden release from some emergency in which she stood. One thing was sure. If that was the way I must go, I had at least been taught how to tread it. And all through the dizzy, blurred day that followed, I saw, as I sat at my work, repeated visions of that stealthy, purposeful figure, stealing down the stairs and entering with uplifted pistol into the unconscious presence of my employer. I even found myself, a dozen times that day, turning my eyes upon the door through which it was to come, wondering how long it would be before my actual form would pause there. That the moment was at hand I did not imagine. Even when I left him that night after drinking with him the glass of sherry mentioned at the inquest, I had no idea the hour of action was so near. But when, not three minutes after going upstairs, I caught the sound of a lady's dress rustling through the hall, and listening, heard Mary Leavenworth pass my door on her way to the library, I realised that the fatal hour was come, that something was going to be said or done in that room which would make this deed necessary. What? I determined to ascertain. Casting about in my mind for the means of doing so, I remembered that the ventilator running up through the house opened first into the passageway connecting Mr. Leavenworth's bedroom and library, and secondly into the closet of the large spare room adjoining mine. Hastily unlocking the door of the communication between the rooms, I took my position in the closet. Instantly the sound of voices reached my ears. All was open below, and standing there I was as much an auditor of what went on between Mary and her uncle as if I were in the library itself. And what did I hear? Enough to assure me my suspicions were correct. That it was a moment of vital interest to her. That Mr. Leavenworth, in pursuance of a threat evidently made some time since, was in the act of taking steps to change his will, and that she had come to make an appeal to be forgiven her fault and restored to his favour. What that fault was I did not learn. No mention was made of Mr. Clavering as her husband. I only heard her declare that her action had been the result of impulse rather than love, that she regretted it, and desired nothing more than to be free from all obligations to one she would fain forget, and be again to her uncle what she was before she ever saw this man. I thought, fool that I was, it was a mere engagement she was alluding to, and took the insanest hope from these words, and when, in a moment later, I heard her uncle reply in his sternest tone that she had irreparably forfeited her claims to his regard and favour, I did not need her short and bitter cry of shame and disappointment, or that low moan for some one to help her, for me to sound his death-knell in my heart. Creeping back to my own room, I waited till I heard her reascend, then I stole forth. 
calm as I had ever been in my life, I went down the stairs, just as I had seen myself do in my dream, and, knocking lightly at the library door, went in. Mr. Leavenworth was sitting in his usual place writing. "'Excuse me,' said I, as he looked up. "'I have lost my memorandum-book, and think it possible I may have dropped it in the passageway when I went for the wine.' He bowed, and I hurried past him into the closet. Once there, I proceeded rapidly into the room beyond, procured the pistol, returned, and almost, before I realised what I was doing, had taken up my position behind him, aimed, and fired. The result was what you know. Without a groan his head fell forward on his hands, and Mary Leavenworth was the virtual possessor of the thousands she coveted. My first thought was to procure the letter he was writing. Approaching the table I tore it out from under his hands, looked at it, saw that it was, as I expected, a summons to his lawyer, and thrust it into my pocket, together with the letter from Mr. Clavering, which I perceived lying spattered with blood on the table before me. Not till this was done did I think of myself, or remember the echo which that low, sharp report must have made in the house. Dropping the pistol at the side of the murdered man, I stood ready to shriek to anyone who entered that Mr. Leavenworth had killed himself, but I was saved from committing such a folly. The report had not been heard, or, if so, had evidently failed to create an alarm. No one came, and I was left to contemplate my work undisturbed, and decide upon the best course to be taken to avoid detection. A moment's study of the wound, made in his head by the bullet, convinced me of the impossibility of passing the affair off as a suicide, or even the work of a burglar. To any one versed in such matters it was manifestly a murder, and a most deliberate one. My one hope, then, lay in making it as mysterious as it was deliberate, by destroying all due to the motive and manner of the deed. Picking up the pistol, I carried it into the other room, with the intention of cleaning it, but finding nothing there to do it with, came back for the handkerchief I had seen lying on the floor at Mr. Leavenworth's feet. It was Miss Eleanor's, but I did not know it till I had used it to clean the barrel. Then the sight of her initials in one corner so shocked me, I forgot to clean the cylinder, and only thought of how I could do away with this evidence of her handkerchief, having been employed for a purpose so suspicious. Not daring to carry it from the room, I sought for means to destroy it, but finding none, compromised the matter by thrusting it deep down behind the cushion of one of the chairs, in the hope of being able to recover and burn it the next day. This done, I reloaded the pistol, locked it up, and prepared to leave the room. But here the horror which usually follows such deeds struck me like a thunderbolt, and made me for the first time uncertain in my action. I locked the door on going out, something I should never have done. Not till I had reached the top of the stairs did I realise my folly, and then it was too late. For there before me, candle in hand, and surprise written on every feature of her face, stood Hannah, one of the servants, looking at me. "'Law, sir, where have you been?' she cried. But strange to say, in a low tone, "'You look as if you had seen a ghost.' and her eyes turned suspiciously to the key which I held in my hand. I felt as if someone had clutched me round the throat. Thrusting the key into my pocket, I took a step towards her. "'I will tell you what I have seen if you will come downstairs,' I whispered. 
"'The ladies will be disturbed if we talk here.' And smoothing my brow as best I could, I put out my hand and drew her towards me. What my motive was I hardly knew. The action was probably instinctive. But when I saw the look which came into her face as I touched her, and the a clarity with which she prepared to follow me, I took courage, remembering the one or two previous tokens I had of this girl's unreasonable susceptibility to my influence, a susceptibility which I now felt could be utilised and made to serve my purpose. Taking her down to the parlour floor, I drew her into the depths of the great drawing-room, and there told her in the least alarming way possible what had happened to Mr. Leavenworth. She was, of course, intensely agitated, but she did not scream, the novelty of her position evidently bewildering her, and, greatly relieved, I went on to say that I did not know who had committed the deed, but that folks would declare that it was I if they knew I had been seen by her on the stairs with the library key in my hand. But I won't tell, she whispered, trembling violently in her fright and eagerness. I will keep it to myself. I will say I didn't see anybody. But I soon convinced her that she could never keep her secret, if the police once began to question her, and, following up my argument, with a little cajolery, succeeded after a long while in winning her consent to leave the house till the storm should be blown over. But that given it was some little time before I could make her comprehend that she must depart at once, and without going back after her things. Not till I brightened up her wits, by a promise to marry her some day, if she only obeyed me now, did she begin to look the thing in the face, and show any evidence of the real mother-wit she evidently possessed. "'Mrs. Belden would take me in,' said she, "'if I could only get to R. She takes everybody in who asks her, and she would keep me too, if I told her Miss Mary sent me. But I can't get there to-night.' I immediately set to work to convince her that she could. The midnight train did not leave the city for half-hour yet, and the distance to the depot could be easily walked by her in fifteen minutes. But she had no money. I easily supplied that. And she was afraid she couldn't find her way. I entered into minutest directions. She still hesitated, but at length consented to go, and, with some further understanding of the method I was to employ in communicating with her, we went downstairs. There we found a hat and shawl of the cook's, which I put on her, and in another moment we were in the carriage-yard. "'Remember you are to say nothing of what has occurred, no matter what happens,' I whispered, in parting injunction as she turned to leave me. "'Remember you are to come and marry me some day,' she murmured in reply, throwing her arms around my neck. The movement was sudden, and it was probably at this time she dropped the candle she had unconsciously held, clenched in her hand till now. I promised her, and she glided out of the gate. Of the dreadful agitation that followed the disappearance of this girl I can give no better idea than by saying I not only committed the additional error of locking up the house on my re-entrance, but omitted to dispose of the key then in my pocket by flinging it into the street or dropping it in the hall as I went up. The fact is I was so absorbed by the thought of the danger I stood in from this girl, I forgot everything else. Hannah's pale face, Hannah's look of terror, as she turned from my side and flitted down the street, were continually before me. I could not escape them. The form of the dead man lying below was less vivid. It was as though I were tied in fancy to this woman of the white face, fluttering down the midnight streets. That she would fail in something, come back or be brought back, 
that I should find her standing white and horror-stricken on the front steps when I went down in the morning was like a nightmare to me. I began to think no other result possible, that she never would or could win her way unchallenged to that little cottage in a distant village, that I had but sent a trailing flag of danger out into the world with this wretched girl, danger that would come back to me with the first burst of morning light. But even those thoughts faded after a while before the realisation of the peril I was in, as long as the key and papers remained in my possession. How to get rid of them? I dared not leave my room again, or open my window. Someone might see me and remember it. Indeed, I was afraid to move about in my room. Mr. Leavenworth might hear me. Yes, my morbid terror had reached that point. I was fearful of one whose ears myself had forever closed, imagined him in his bed beneath, and wakeful to the least sound. But the necessity of doing something with these evidences of guilt finally overcame this morbid anxiety, and drawing the two letters from my pocket, I had not yet undressed, I chose out the most dangerous of the two, that written by Mr. Leavenworth himself, and, chewing it till it was a mere pulp, threw it into a corner but the other had blood on it, and nothing, not even the hope of safety, could induce me to put it to my lips. I was forced to lie with it clenched in my hand, and the flitting image of Hannah before my eyes, till the slow morning broke. I have heard it said that a year in heaven seems like a day. I can easily believe it. I know that an hour in hell seems an eternity. But with daylight came hope. Whether it was that the sunshine glancing on the wall made me think of Mary and all I was ready to do for her sake, or whether it was the mere return of my natural stoicism in the presence of actual necessity, I cannot say. I only know that I arose calm and master of myself. The problem of the letter and the key had solved itself also. Hide them? I would not try to. Instead of that, I would put them in plain sight, trusting to that very fact for their being overlooked making the letter up into lighters, I carried them into the spare room and placed them in a vase. Then, taking the key in my hand, went downstairs, intending to insert it in the lock of the library door as I went by. But Miss Eleanor, descending almost immediately behind me, made this impossible. I succeeded, however, in thrusting it without her knowledge among the filigree work of the gas-fixture in the second hall, and thus relieved went down into the breakfast-room as self-possessed a man as ever crossed its threshold. Mary was there, looking exceedingly pale and disheartened, and as I met her eye, which for a wonder turned upon me as I entered, I could almost have laughed, thinking of the deliverance that had come to her, and of the time when I should proclaim myself to be the man who had accomplished it. Of the alarm that speedily followed, and my action at that time and afterwards, I need not speak in detail. I behaved just as I would have done if I had had no hand in the murder. I even forbore to touch the key, or go into the spare room, or make any movement which I was not willing all the world should see. For, as things stood, there was not a shadow of evidence against me in the house. Neither was I a hard-working, uncomplaining secretary, whose passion for one of his employer's nieces was not even mistrusted by the lady herself, a person to be suspected of the crime which threw him out of a fair situation. So I performed all the duties of my position, summoning the police, and going for Mr. Veeley, just as I would have done, if those hours between me leaving Mr. Leavenworth for the first time and going down to breakfast in the morning had been blotted from my consciousness. 
and this was the principle upon which I based my action at the inquest. Leaving that half-hour and its occurrences out of the question, I resolved to answer such questions as might be put me as truthfully as I could, the great fault with men situated as I was usually being that they lied too much, thus committing themselves on unessential matters. But alas, in thus planning for my own safety, I forgot one thing, and that was the dangerous position in which I should thus place Mary Leavenworth, as the one benefited by the crime. Not till the inference was drawn by a juror from the amount of wine found in Mr. Leavenworth's glass in the morning, that he had come to his death shortly after my leaving him, did I realise what an opening I had made for suspicion in her direction, by admitting that I had heard a rustle on the stair a few minutes after going up. That all present believed it to have been made by Eleanor did not reassure me. She was so completely disconnected with the crime I could not imagine suspicion holding to her for an instant. But Mary, if a curtain had been let down before me, pictured with the future as it has since developed, I could not have seen more plainly what her position would be, if attention were once directed towards her. So, in the vain endeavour to cover up my blunder, I began to lie. Forced to admit that a shadow of disagreement had been lately visible between Mr. Leavenworth and one of his nieces, I threw the burden of it upon Eleanor, as the one best able to bear it. The consequences were more serious than I anticipated. Direction had been given to suspicion, which every additional evidence that now came up seemed by some strange fatality to strengthen. Not only was it proved that Mr. Leavenworth's own pistol had been used in the assassination, and that too by a person then in the house, but I myself was brought to acknowledge that Eleanor had learned from me, only a little while before, how to load, aim, and fire this very pistol, a coincidence mischievous enough to have been of the devil's own making. Seeing all this, my fear of what the ladies would admit when questioned became very great. Let them in their innocence acknowledge that, upon my assent, Mary had gone to her uncle's room for the purpose of persuading him not to carry into effect the action he contemplated, and what consequences might not ensue. I was in a torment of apprehension, but events of which I had at that time no knowledge had occurred to influence them. Eleanor, with some show of reason as it seems, not only suspected her cousin of the crime, but had informed her of the fact, and Mary, overcome with terror, at finding there was more or less circumstantial evidence supporting the suspicion, decided to deny whatever told against herself, trusting to Eleanor's generosity not to be contradicted. Nor was her confidence misplaced, though by the course she took Eleanor was forced to deepen the prejudice already rife against herself. She not only forbore to contradict her cousin, but when a true answer would have injured her, actually refused to return any, a lie being something she could not utter, even to save one especially endeared to her. This conduct of hers had one effect upon me. It aroused my admiration, and made me feel that here was a woman worth helping, if assistance could be given without danger to myself. Yet I doubt if my sympathy would have led me into doing anything, if I had not perceived, by the stress laid upon certain well-known matters, that actual danger hovered about us all, while the letter and key remained in the house. Even before the handkerchief was produced, I had made up my mind to attempt their destruction. 
but when that was brought up and shown i became so alarmed i immediately rose and making my way under some pretence or other to the floors above snatched the key from the gas-fixture the lighters from the vase and hastening with them down the hall to mary leavenworth's room went in under the expectation of finding a fire there in which to destroy them but to my heavy disappointment there were only a few smouldering ashes in the grate and thwarted in my design i stood hesitating what to do when i heard someone coming up the stairs alive to the consequences of being found in that room at that time i cast the lighters into the grate and started for the door but in the quick move i made the key flew from my hand and slid under a chair aghast at the mischance i paused but the sound of approaching steps increasing i lost all control over myself and fled from the room and indeed i had no time to lose i had barely reached my own door when eleanor leavenworth followed by two servants appeared at the top of the staircase and proceeded towards the room i had just left the sight reassured me she would see the key and take some means of disposing it and indeed i always supposed her to have done so for no further word of the key or letter ever came to my ears this may explain why the questionable position in which eleanor soon found herself awakened in me no great anxiety i thought the suspicions of the police rested upon nothing more tangible than the peculiarity of her manner at the inquest and the discovery of her handkerchief on the scene of the tragedy i did not know they possessed what might be called absolute proof of her connection with the crime but if i had i doubt if my course would have been any different mary's peril was the one thing capable of influencing me and she did not appear to be in peril on the contrary every one by common consent seemed to ignore all appearance of guilt on her part if mr gryce whom i soon learned to fear had given one sign of suspicion or mr raymond whom i speedily recognised as my most persistent though unconscious foe had betrayed the least distrust of her i should have taken warning but they did not and lulled into a false security by their manner i let the days go by without suffering any fears on her account but not without many anxieties for myself hannah's existence precluded all sense of personal security knowing the determination of the police to find her i trod the verge of an awful suspense continually meantime the wretched certainty was forcing itself upon me that i had lost instead of gained a hold on mary leavenworth not only did she evince the most utmost horror of the deed which had made her mistress of her uncle's wealth but owing as i believed to the influence of mr raymond soon gave evidence that she was losing to a certain extent the characteristics of mind and heart which had made me hopeful of winning her by this deed of blood this revelation drove me almost insane under the terrible restraint forced upon me i walked my weary round in a state of mind bordering on frenzy many and many a time have i stopped in my work wiped my pen and laid it down with the idea that i could not repress myself another moment but i have always taken it up again and gone on with my task mr raymond has sometimes shown his wonder at my sitting in my dead employer's chair great heaven it was my only safeguard by keeping the murder constantly before my mind i was enabled to restrain myself from any inconsiderate action at last there came a time when my agony could no longer be suppressed going down the stairs one evening with mr raymond i saw a strange gentleman standing in the reception-room looking at mary leavenworth in a way that would have made my blood boil even if i had not heard him whisper these words 
but you are my wife and know it whatever you may say or do it was the lightning stroke of my life after what i had done to make her mine to hear another claim her as already his own was stunning maddening it forced a demonstration from me i had either to yell in my fury or deal the man beneath some tremendous blow in my hatred i did not dare to shriek so i struck the blow demanding his name from mr raymond and hearing that it was as i expected clavering i flung caution reason common sense all to the winds and in a moment of fury denounced him as the murderer of mr leavenworth the next instant i would have given worlds to recall my words what had i done but drawn attention to myself in thus accusing a man against whom nothing could of course be proved but recall now was impossible so after a night of thought i did the next best thing i gave a superstitious reason for my action and so restored myself to my former position without eradicating from the mind of mr raymond that vague doubt of the man which my own safety demanded but i had no intention of going any further nor should i have done so if i had not observed that for some reason mr raymond was willing to suspect mr clavering but that once seen revenge took possession of me and i asked myself if the burden of this crime could be thrown on this man still i do not believe that any active results would have followed this self-questioning if i had not overheard a whispered conversation between two of the servants in which i learned that mr clavering had been seen to enter the house on the night of the murder but was not seen to leave it that determined me with such a fact for a starting-point what might i not hope to accomplish hannah alone stood in my way while she remained alive i saw nothing but ruin before me i made up my mind to destroy her and satisfy my hatred of mr clavering at one blow but how by what means could i reach her without deserting my post or make away with her without exciting fresh suspicion the problem seemed insolvable but truman harwell has not played the part of a machine so long without result before i had studied the question a day light broke upon it and i saw that the only way to accomplish my plans was to inveigle her into destroying herself no sooner had this thought matured that i hastened to act upon it knowing the tremendous risk i ran i took every precaution locking myself up in my room i wrote her a letter in printed characters she having distinctly told me she could not read writing in which i played upon her ignorance foolish fondness and irish superstition by telling her i dreamed of her every night and wondered if she did of me was afraid she didn't so enclosed her a little charm which if she would use according to directions would give her the most beautiful visions these directions were for her first to destroy my letter by burning it next to take in her hand the packet i was careful to enclose swallow the powder accompanying it and go to bed the powder was a deadly dose of poison and the packet was as you know a forged confession falsely criminating henry clavering enclosing all these in an envelope in the corner of which i had marked a cross i directed it according to agreement to mrs belden and sent it then followed the greatest period of suspense i had yet endured though i had purposely refrained from putting my name to the letter i felt that the chances of detection were very great let her depart in the least particular from the course i had marked out for her and fatal results must ensue if she opened the enclosed packet mistrusted the powder 
took Mrs. Belden into her confidence, or even failed to burn my letter, all would be lost. I could not be sure of her, or know the results of my scheme except through the newspapers. Do you think I kept watch of the countenances about me, devoured the telegraphic news, or started when the bell rang? And when, a few days since, I read that short paragraph in the paper, which assured me that my efforts had at least produced the death of the woman I feared, do you think I experienced any sense of relief? But of that why speak? In six hours had come the summons from Mr. Grice, and let these prison walls, this confession itself, tell the rest. I am no longer capable of speech or action. End of chapter 38 Chapter thirty nine of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty nine The Outcome of a Great Crime. Leave her to heaven and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. Hamlet. For she is wise if I can judge of her and fair she is, if that mine eyes be true, and true she is, as she has proved herself, and therefore, like herself, wise, fair, and true, shall she be placed in my constant soul. Merchant of Venice O oh, Eleanor, I cried, as I made my way into her presence, are you prepared for very good news? News that will brighten these pale cheeks, and give the light back to these eyes, and make life hopeful and sweet to you once more? Tell me, I urged, stooping over her where she sat, for she looked ready to faint. I don't know, she faltered. I fear your idea of good news and mine may differ. No news can be good, but— What? I asked, taking her hands in mine, with a smile that ought to have reassured her. It was one of such profound happiness. Tell me, do not be afraid. But she was. Her dreadful burden had lain upon her so long it had become a part of her being. How could she realise it was founded on a mistake, that she had no cause to fear the past, present or future? But when the truth was made known to her, when, with all the fervour and gentle tact of which I was capable, I showed her that her suspicions had been groundless, and that Truman Harwell, and not Mary, was accountable for the evidences of crime which had led her into attributing to her cousin the guilt of her uncle's death, her first words were a prayer to be taken to the one she had so wronged. "'Take me to her! Oh, take me to her! I cannot breathe or think till I have begged pardon of her on my knees. Oh, my unjust accusation! My unjust accusation!' Seeing the state she was in, I deemed it wise to humour her, so, procuring a carriage, I drove with her to her cousin's home. "'Mary will spurn me. She will not even look at me. And she will be right,' she cried as we rolled away up the avenue. "'An outrage like this can never be forgiven. But God knows I thought myself justified in my suspicions. If you knew—' "'I do know,' I interposed. "'Mary acknowledges that the circumstantial evidence against her was so overwhelming—' She was almost staggered herself, 
asking if she could be guiltless with such proofs against her, but— "'Wait! Oh, wait! Did Mary say that?' "'Yes.' "'Today?' "'Yes.' "'Mary must be changed.' I did not answer. I wanted her to see for herself the extent of that change. But when, in a few minutes later, the carriage stopped and I hurried with her into the house, which had been the scene of so much misery, I was hardly prepared for the difference in her own countenance which the hall light revealed. Her eyes were bright, her cheeks were brilliant, her brow lifted and free from shadow. So quickly does the ice of despair melt in the sunshine of hope. Thomas, who had opened the door, was sombrely glad to see his mistress again. "'Miss Leavenworth is in the drawing-room,' said he. I nodded, then, seeing that Eleanor could scarcely move for agitation, asked her whether she would go in at once or wait till she was more composed. "'I will go in at once. I cannot wait.' And slipping from my grasp, she crossed the hall and laid her hand upon the drawing-room curtain, when it was suddenly lifted from within, and Mary stepped out. "'Mary! Eleanor!' The ring of those voices told everything. I did not need to glance their way to know that Eleanor had fallen at her cousin's feet, and that her cousin had affrightedly lifted her. I did not need to hear, "'My sin against you is too great. You cannot forgive me,' followed by the low, "'My shame is great enough to lead me to forgive anything,' to know that the lifelong shadow between these two had dissolved like a cloud, and that for the future bright days of mutual confidence and sympathy were in store. Yet, when a half-hour or so later I heard the door of the reception-room into which I had retired softly open, and looking up saw Mary standing on the threshold, with the light of true humility on her face, I owned that I was surprised at the softening which had taken place in her haughty beauty. "'Blessed is the shame that purifies,' I inwardly murmured, and advancing held out my hand with a respect and sympathy I never thought to feel for her again. The action seemed to touch her. Blushing deeply, she came and stood by my side. "'I thank you,' said she. "'I have much to be grateful for. How much I never realised till to-night. But I cannot speak of it now. What I wish is for you to come in and help me persuade Eleanor to accept this fortune from my hands. It is hers, you know. Was willed to her, or would have been, if—' "'Wait,' said I, in the trepidation which this appeal to me on such a subject somehow awakened. "'Have you weighed this matter well?' Is it your determined purpose to transfer your fortune into your cousin's hands? Her look was enough without the low, Ah, how can you ask me? that followed it. Mr. Clavering was sitting by the side of Eleanor when we entered the drawing-room. He immediately rose, and drawing me to one side, earnestly said, Before the courtesies of the hour pass between us, Mr. Raymond, allow me to tender you my apology. You have in your possession a document which ought never to have been forced upon you. Founded upon a mistake, the act was an insult, which I bitterly regret. If, in consideration of my mental misery at that time, you can pardon it, I shall feel for ever indebted to you. If not, Mr. Clavering, say no more. The occurrences of that day belong to a past which I, for one, have made up my mind to forget as soon as possible. The future promises too richly for us to dwell on bygone miseries. And, with a look of mutual understanding and friendship, we hasten to rejoin the ladies. 
Of the conversation that followed it is only necessary to state the result. Eleanor remaining firm in her refusal to accept property so stained by guilt, it was finally agreed upon that it should be devoted to the erection and sustainment of some charitable institution of magnitude sufficient to be a recognised benefit to the city and its unfortunate poor. This settled, our thoughts returned to our friends, especially to Mr. Veeley. "'He ought to know,' said Mary. "'He has grieved like a father over us.' And in her spirit of penitence she would have undertaken the unhappy task of telling him the truth. But Eleanor, with her accustomed generosity, would not hear of this. "'No, Mary,' said she, "'you have suffered enough. Mr. Raymond and I will go.' and, leaving them there, with the light of growing hope and confidence on their faces, we went out again into the night, and so into a dream from which I have never waked, though the shine of her dear eyes have been now the lodestar of my life for many happy, happy months. End of chapter 39 Recording by Kevin Green End of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.